0: Hello, and welcome to Across the Isle, your monthly discussion about theatre and the arts in Melbourne. I'm Philip Thiel, your host for today's episode, and I'm joined as always by my guru, Carla Donnelly. Hi, Carla. Hello. And in a daring first for our podcast, we are both joined by a special guest this month, Dion Kagan. Hi, Dion. Hi, Philip. Hi, hi, Carla. Oh, my God. Uh, Who are you? What's (laughs) happening? It's so crowded in
1: here.
2: Dion, you have been my intellectual crush for so long. I can't even believe you're here.
1: Well, that's a relief to hear because I have been Twitter flirting with this podcast ever <laughs> since the first episode and secretly, not so secretly, angling to be the very first guest. Good moves. And I've made my own wish come true. Yeah,
2: manifestation. Take we that the want... secret.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we do want more gay voices on the radio. Yes. Dion is a academic, a theatre nerd, a man about town,
2: a
1: soon-to-be-published book person. <laughs> very exciting to have you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm very privileged to be the first, first guest ever. Woo! So, it's a little bit different. All three of us attended
0: the productions we'll be discussing today. Usually, I choose one, Carla chooses the other, and we grudgingly attend to each other's taste. <laughs> Uh, Today, Dion suggested Boutique Theatre's double feature of two original Australian works, Madame Bast by Matthew Sinney and Don't Tell the Women by Samantha Cunningham. In another first, Carla and I had to collaborate on choosing (laughs) the (laughs) second show, so we kind of just compromised with the crowd plays of Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by bell shakespeare i
2: think that says so much about us that we just chose this devastating play about love that's you know played out so Sad many times teenagers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: but it's nice actually to do that in this month commemorating the 400 years that have passed since shakespeare's death and as always between the acts we'll take an intermission to hear about what else has distracted us since we last spoke Okay, let's get started with Dion's pick for April, Double Feature. What drew you to this one,
1: Dion? Okay, well, so this, this was a Double Feature from Boutique Theatre, who are a small, independent, Melbourne-based local theatre company whose productions happen at the Mechanics Institute in Brunswick. I feel like I didn't choose this play so much as it chose me. April was a really dead month in theatre in Melbourne, and this appeared in my inbox Basically the day after you invited me to join you on the show, and I thought, let's look at this. I do feel like I might have done a little backpedaling afterwards when I apprehended the kind of double-billness of the double bill. <laughs> um, so this this that we went to see was two original Australian plays, both new works that are part of boutiques writers' program. So, there are new works by local writers that have been developed into a main stage, what Boutique call a main stage production. And just very quickly, Boutique are sort of relaunching themselves as a theatre, small theatre company that's really focused on inclusivity. So, they've got this really diverse, large ensemble of producers and actors and creatives. And they're also very very focused on narrative theatre and the type of theatre that is accessible to a wide audience so they're kind of almost pointedly against highbrow overintellectualized theatre so in some ways they're kind of the worst theatre company i could ever attend <laughs> <laughs> they're not making shows for me interesting
0: that kind of radically non-conceptual storytelling vibe I mean, I caught it from these productions, right? Mm. They are essentially both of them uh, ripping yarns about things that might actually happen and conversations that are relatively familiar. That was the tone at least of Madame to the first of the plays.
2: Just as an overview note, I will actually say that that's really interesting because when I do look at the program, there's, you know, headshots of everyone on there, it, it was one of the first times in a very long time that I've seen just such a diverse amount of people on stage, like people of colour, different ages, and there's so many women in the background, it seems, and yeah, it, that was pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, the, the diversity is, I think, one of their kind of showpiece elements, and that is really fabulous. And, but does it work? Well, that is the question. And so I, I guess the, the best way to approach this would be to kind of talk about the two plays, and then maybe we can... See if there were kind of overlaps or resonances between the two of them, or how they spoke mutually to each other. Sure. So the first of the double bill, Madame Bast. This is a kind. This is a new work by a playwright called Matthew Sinai, who's also one of the producers um, and a sometimes director for the company. And this is a naturalist play set in the contemporary time about a young woman called Jasmine, who is the centre of a coterie of university students who happen upon a kind of kooky, larger than life psychic who lives next door to them in their share house. Um, <laughs> that sounds is. promising, I have to say. I do
2: <laughs> want to see it. And hijinks ensue.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically hi- hijinks ensue. And the setup of this play is that Jasmine is a deep sceptic. She gets lured to a seance held by Madame Bast, who incidentally has a obsession with ancient Egypt. Um, and at the seance and, I, you know, this is, I suppose, a spoiler, but the, the season has, has finished now, so it's okay. The ghost of a former classmate of hers from primary school, from, sorry, high school, who she perhaps bullied, appears. And this raises the question of can she hold onto her scepticism or, or does she have to believe in this kind of mysticism, this bizarre appearance from, from beyond the grave? Mm.
2: In order to absolve herself, so that I feel like that's the thing that that is the turn, right? It's like whether to believe or not to believe. To believe in the experience is to then have to go down the path of absolving herself of potentially contributing to this young person's yeah. bullied. Suicide. Exactly.
0: And her denial of the supernatural is also a denial of responsibility. Correct. Yeah. It all comes from the same, (laughs) quote, cashed up bogan living next door. I was interested in this sense that they were crossing a class divide in order to access this kind of kooky, amateurish hobbyist next door. Over and over again, they used the word bogan to describe her. And later, the woman herself, um, Madame Bast, whose other name is Jenny, tells her own story about aspiration, how discovering that she had psychic gifts sort of lifted her out of a bad crowd, that she was running on the wrong side of the tracks and getting into trouble, but then was gifted with the magical powers required (laughs) to to be elevated to such an extent that art students might come and visit her. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's so interesting that you that you point out the class element. I hadn't actually been so conscious of that, except that I had very strongly had a sense that these were art students or, or undergraduate students from a very privileged university. Yeah. The way they, the, their kind of haught, haughty, self-important way of talking about themselves, the way they just kind of drank lo- lots of red wine in their share house. And just the sort of general attitude that they had to her and and to kind of university life. And that
2: that the world was theirs to be had. There was kind of this very, like, imperialist kind of attitude of her to, like, you know, go to this bogan woman next door who's a psychic and you know for the for the pure reasons of humiliating her or for being a laugh or whatever like there was no kind of respect or anything of going into this woman's home using you know you wouldn't no matter what you thought of her services that you know that everything that she was was a joke so there was that kind of imperialistic attitude from you know notedly as well like a a young female asian protagonist
1: yeah that there were sort of weird questions about the motive, like how did they get into her house to begin with, and what you know what then were all all their different relationships with with that experience because one of them takes it quite seriously, yeah, and then so she's got Jasmine has got these two friends and one of them is this kind of fey, dreamy, gormless Jewish girl, I think, <laughs> and then the other is this kind of archetypal gay undergrad guy who's a bit of a slut and he's kind of, at the beginning he's this object of speculation because they're interested in why he hasn't been telling them about his love life and maybe he's had a test for an STI and that sort of doesn't really go anywhere. Although all of that stuff for me was the interesting Mm. matter of the play. Like I found that it's no coincidence, I don't think, that Matthew Siner who wrote this is a university lecturer at Melbourne University. Uh because the conversations between the students were, for me, the most compelling. They really reminded me of not only conversations that I've overheard on campus, but ones that I had as a horrible, (laughs) arrogant, entitled (laughs) undergrad.
2: So I've got a question for both of you, but maybe I'll throw it out to Philip first. I think that the archetype point is actually the common thread that is through these both these plays. And I don't know whether you feel like these are archetype, played archetypes so that so many different kinds, so that some everyone in the audience can find something that they can play along with, or did they sort of degenerate into stereotypes?
0: I think that that's a really interesting question and that there were attempts, including perhaps more so in the second play, Don't Tell the Women, to put some of those up front and then to gently undermine them by making the characters a bit more complex or multi-layered or to put them in situations and conversations that trouble whatever sense of them we might have had at the outset. I was distracted in this first play, Madame Bast, by the terrible puppet show about Egypt. (laughs) I'm just going to throw that in for no reason.
2: There was... was, was there was a lot going on in this play. I really enjoyed the, di- the dialogue, just like Dion said. I thought the dialogue was very good, but the actual structure, I thought that there was way too much going on.
0: And what is Madame Bastion archetype of exactly?
1: You know, like she. she She's a sort of kooky, kooky l- larger than suburban. life. Yeah. There's a way in which, you're. I agree with you both, there was too much going on in this play and it it needed to be pared back, but it did have these really promising elements. I think Matthew Sinai or Siné should write more plays about university students. (laughs) Um, But there were these kind of gestures to a kind of queer cadenced or camp throughout the play. You know, the figure of Madame Bast was that slightly... Deaverish, independent, kind of care, devil may care, kooky woman. She didn't really, she didn't really, I don't know if it was the performance or the actor that was cast, something was wrong. It wasn't, she wasn't, she didn't draw you in. She wasn't fabulous enough or she wasn't kind of abject enough. Some, something about, yeah, her she was, wasn't,
2: she wasn't either like cat, crazy cat lady enough or kind of like super mysterious, amazing spiritual lady enough.
0: Maybe we can pivot on that question of um, queerness and perhaps the insufficiency of queerness in that opening play because the second play, Don't Tell the Women, has a really interestingly problematic gay man that I can't wait to hear your thoughts on.
2: Uh, Me three. (laughs)
0: Like, why do we have to have a misogynistic, conservative, gay man
1: lecture us?
2: <laughs> Dion, do you want to introduce Don't Tell the Women a little bit? Okay,
1: well, I don't think there's a whole lot to say in terms of the setup of this play's narrative. It's a very simple kind of set piece in a bar involving three men, three different men who come in, start playing pool, buy a drink from the, the single woman performer who is initially the bartender Mm. who goes on to play a number of different female roles in the lives of these men as they're recreated throughout the scene. Mm. And basically the play is a one act in which each of these men reveal the tribulations they're having in their lives and relationships, particularly with women. One of them has been cook um or is sorry is the yeah, the cheater is the cheater mm. has been cheating on his wife he longs for her pre having babies um the other Gross. another is a a gay man who has had sex with his best friend they've fallen pregnant and she wants him out um and he's deeply disappointed about that and the third is this kind of idealistic naive young man who's been dumped by the woman that he loves Basically, on the eve of proposing to her, so there are these three troubled men, and that's that's the setup.
2: Three troubled men, but one massively troubled <laughs> <laughs> message to the play. I feel.
1: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. What is said message?
2: Oh, look, you know, look, I'm, you know on a lot of days on my on my very bad many days I'm a radical separatist (laughs) feminist and I even felt like every man got a bad rap in this play like I just don't understand what it was exploring and I don't understand the message that it was trying to throw out like particularly throwing the gay male character into the mix like If you cleave out the gay male character, you can kind of be like, oh, you know, masculinity is in crisis, blah, 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 blah. This may connect to somebody in the audience, something, something. But when you add the element of the gay male relationship, which is so fucking problematic because it didn't need to be about... A gay man having sex with his female best friend and then she casting him out because she doesn't want a kid to have a gay dad. You know, like, I know so many gay men with, like, so many problematic relationships with their mothers that that would have been, like, the more apt relationship to portray. So what do you you guys make of this as men?
0: Well, and as gay men, because, I mean, that gay man seemed to have some fantasy of saying the bro. Stuff that straight men get to say about women. I mean, one of the lines that he says is about, you know, how to seduce women. You, quote, compliment her and insult her at the same time.
2: Again. You know, <laughs> high five,
0: bro. Having said all that, I thought that the play itself was exposing men for the people who sometimes like imagination or understanding or empathy with and for women that they are. And the way that the... Director um, Perry Cummings moved her characters in and out of these memories and back into this kind of shared male space in the pub where the woman never speaks, right? She's Mm. there the whole time, ready to offer some kind of truth about female experience that they are all obsessively discussing, but just buying drinks from her. I thought that that way of telling the story was effective, that she would kind of snap people out with a different lighting design and have some insight into what they're really concerned about or wondering about. And that's where all of the disgusting, misogynistic stuff actually was. Mm -hmm. And then back into this weird, tense space around a pool table where things were nicely randomised because they were literally playing a game of pool Mm -hmm. in front of us. I thought that was really effective storytelling and gave some insight into how artificial and heightened those male-only spaces are and how formed and camp it is to be a man playing pool at the pub. Mm. And so, yeah, I I was drawn into the the conversations and reminiscences, problematic though they were.
1: I was drawn into – it was very stark and dramatic and it really did – Thematically, remind me of a play that I might have seen 10 or 15 years ago exploring masculinity, it could have been exactly the same I felt. I felt the gay character was a kind of gesture to a contemporary idea of, of you know, what gay men might want, which is family and domesticity, which cuts up against, you know, kind of polysexuality and, you know, hedonism. So I found that very disinteresting and I, I kind of was more interested in what you both seemed to like about it, which was the staging and the sort of dynamic of the wo- that the woman played as a silent witness who did actually, I'll correct you, Philip, speak once, I think, and said something hilarious like, you guys, know fuck all. Mm. You have so little insight, which was <laughs> kind of insulting, but true and, you know, kind of a nice sort of moment. I suppose... My feeling about this play is that it demonstrated to me, you know, if I were kind of going in to learn about contemporary masculinity from this play, what I would walk away from is this idea that men still bond in this classically homosocial way. They only can connect with each other by talking about women, either by objectifying them, bitching about them, or discussing their relationship with them, and that having a woman in the space also makes that safe. So, so weirdly, it's okay for that to be witnessed by a woman. And that well, because that's- it's
2: perpetuating it, they're talking about it and doing it at the same time. Exactly. And I think that that was the most amazing function of that female character because she, in turn, becomes the woman plays the woman in the man's life, and when they're playing out the scenarios that are happening, and the message behind that is. I think quite beautiful and maybe I'm idealistic in thinking that, interpreting in this way, but I feel like the message was if you do this to one woman, you do this to all women. Mm. So her passing through every one of those situations, you know, treating one woman that way, in eventually all the way down the line, it's treating every woman like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: and that those little things that men say to each other and do with each other do have an impact on gender relations symbolically and
1: structurally. It did have the total feel of symbolism of politics, the single woman, the three men signifying big groups of people and everything about the staging and, and direction and production kind of signified in issues, which I think, you know, sets you up in some ways for a, for a very heavy critique when something a little bit more idiosyncratic and nuanced could have just relaxed the play somewhat.
0: Mm, Which is interesting in light of what you said about the boutique theatre's goal, to be the kind of sitting around a campfire telling yarns theatre. Um, I agree that this wasn't that.
2: (laughs) It was pretty bludgeoning, both of them. Yeah. I think they were both very well made, though. What do you think?
1: I think that they were both very well directed. Yeah. Um, The performances were strong. You know, I agree that the first play was overly ambitious. It had too much. It had too much shadow puppet, ancient Egypt stories. (laughs) It was too ambitious. There was a lot of
2: metaphors going on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was so slapstick. I've never seen
0: slapstick meet high serious in quite the same way as Thoth being sort of slapped onto a wall as a shadow puppet. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, look. It's, It's intermission. It's
2: intermission.
0: So you're our guest, Dion. What can we get you from the bar?
1: <laughs> um, Spritz. Look, what's, since, y-
2: what's your favour?
1: Since I'm with you guys, I'll, I'll have a sparkling... Cheers! Oh. Party! It <laughs> does feel a bit
0: celebratory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a great time. What have we been up to? What have you seen?
1: Other than the stuff that we're raving on about today. I'm surprised at how culturally busy, busy my month has been when I look back on it. I think the highlight was I went to see Yummy at the uh, mm. Mel- Melbourne Spiegel tent, Jealous. which was, yeah, really fun, a kind of drag, cabaret, dance, live performance curated by James Wellsby, who's a um, former contemporary dancer from Melbourne, choreographer, who I've done some work with, who's now recreated himself as a drag queen, Valerie Hex, Based in Berlin, and he was back in Melbourne. Curated this wonderful bunch of people, beloved performers from Melbourne and Sydney, Yana, Alana, Betty Grumble, some dancers, um, and it was just this fabulous night—a very queer, very kind of bawdy, very challenging drag and oh, scrumptious. Yeah.
2: Well, yummy,
1: Mm-mm, <laughs> delicious.
0: Um, equally scrumptious was Lucia di Lamamore by Victorian State Opera. The way that it was being built, um, I was in the front row for this at the Ooh. same theatre at which we saw Georgie Girl a
2: couple of months ago. <laughs> Hopefully, it was kind of-
0: <laughs> Yes I could see down into the pit. It was wonderfully voyeuristic. This soprano, Jessica Pratt, I mean, she's got this nice little accidental feature, which is that she is the third. Australian to sing the role of Lucia at La Scala Milan Ooh. after, of Ooh, course, love. Dame Joan Sutherland and Dame the other Dame, right? So, Kira it, it was fabulous. Well, no, who's the actual Dame, like the Dame Dame? Well, Joan Sutherland and the one that's. Melba! N- Nelly Melba! Ah. Who's actually like a painting of her is at Her Majesty's Theatre. Um, so the question was, you know, is this the next Dame? Ooh. The next Australian who's made it big in Italy? And it was just. Pure melodrama, pure sentiment, pure passion, and a really dusty old school set. Yes. It was uh, going back in time. That's a like good segue like to our opera, next opera, as play. it has been done since year dot. I think it might have actually, you know, it had the air of what Donizetti himself might have been working with. <laughs> Wheeled
1: creakily out from the wings, and it's a real
0: bloody gory it's ending. So fabulously, I mean, she's in her bridal dress, covered in the blood of the husband that she's just madly stabbed. Holding the weapon, waving it around at all of these shocked-looking yes. wedding guests—it's
1: one of the more delicious plots in it. opera. Yeah, good times. I wish we'd seen that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, when we left our second show, which we're about to talk about, I bumped into some people who'd been to that opera, and they were so kind of vibrant and excited, and it does moved. that. Yeah, and they said, "Where have you been?" I was like, R and J. You <laughs>
2: know.
0: Carla, what have you been doing?
2: Um well I've been thinking long well, I've actually been sort of studying and hanging out at home, so I've been watching a lot of TV and we haven't talked about what I believe is to be the best television show currently going.
0: If RuPaul's not, drag race season. Not
2: eight. RuPaul's, <laughs> although kimchi, team kimchi, whatever. No, the Americans. Have you guys ever watched that show? No. Oh my god, it's so twisted and amazing. So first of all, like I love that when this happens and it's what gives it such a depth of richness is the two lead actors, Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell, both married, get divorced as soon as they start the show because they start having an affair together. So now they're on the road to getting married and they're having a baby. So it's this like really dense, dripping psychosexual chemistry that they have already. But it is uh, set in 1983 and it is, like, no holds barred 1983. It's so fucking ugly. It's amazing. (laughs) And they're KGB agents living in America. They've been living in America for 20 years.
1: KGB? That's Mm -hmm. so 1983.
2: Oh, my God. It's so hot. And it's, like, half Russian actors. It's just amazing. And then also, like, all the spy technology of 1983. It's just such a beautifully realised world. But also, like, it's so gorgeous and dance on what it has to say about identity and love and you know like they're KGB agents that have been you know married for convenience but they're beginning to like understand that they're falling in love or what that they, they have two children you know mm. like it's it's unbelievable I would highly recommend everybody watch the show
1: Philip
0: did you make it to the queer film festival oh. I saw one set of shorts at the Queer Film Festival, a new concept which was called "Hookup Shorts. And I think the only reason they gathered this clutch of short films together was to screen one particular one, whose title I've forgotten, but it was about some dude who set up Glory Hole in his place. It was called Glory Hole, I remember now. Huh? It's come back to me. It was a what doco a about one crazy, ultra-suburban old guy who's actually... Changed his rental property to such an extent that people can walk through the front door, use the glory hole facility without ever seeing him or entering any further into the house, and then leave again. So he's on Craigslist just hour by hour having randos drive up and access him via this glory hole that he has built.
2: Like, what, in America?
0: Well, no, and in in the suburbs of Melbourne.
2: What?
0: (laughs) So careful with Craigslist, everyone. But uh, it was actually a documentary about a mad person. And yet it was billed to the Queer Film Festival as perhaps, like, an interesting example of sexual freedom or the possibilities of the internet. But the longer it went on, it was really slowly edited. The longer it went on and the more you saw of this man talking about himself, the sadder and more bleak Mm, and kind of static his life seemed. Did
2: that feel exploitative? Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Um, But the... Room was full of men, and there's just you know I've said this this before, but there's hollering you know. Well, you down. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I I always try to go to the <laughs> queer film festival some expression for some expression of contemporary queer, um, you know, gender bending and a transitional phase for politics in the queer space. But what I get all the time is just gay men watching gay
1: movies together. Mm. Yeah. I, th- I think. I- <laughs> I think we need to have a little talk about your your selection practices. (laughs) I did get the distinct sense that there was a bit of a shift this year with the programming of the queer film festival. Oh, a new
2: director! Had
1: new directors. Yeah. I did a special episode of my podcast, The Rereaders, on it. So you know, I've, I've been seeing heaps of the films, and I found it to be a much more satisfying kind of diverse program. I won't, I won't go into it, but the one that I really want to recommend to you both is Closet Monster. Okay. I feel like this one's going to do some circulating. It's a Canadian film, a debut by a director whose name slips my mind, but it's a, it's a kind of new take on the queer coming out narrative with sort of body horror and really kind of sexy mm. soundtrack and, um, you know, it's a bit of, it, it's a bit of the kind of whimsy generations of your Dolan kind of film, but it's really wonderful. good really well, next year we will sit down together <laughs> with the catalogue <laughs> before I book myself in for something
0: as um, unsettling as what I saw this year.
2: Uh, what's that?
0: Quick. Rush. Shakespeare.
2: I've got to go. Get your pantaloons ready. <laughs> okay, act two. Second play, Philip and I, our choice this month was Belle Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And what does it say? Violence rumbles through the streets with two families at war from such angry beginnings flame the fire of passion and forbidden love. So why do we go and see Shakespeare still? Particularly the same... Plays? I don't even know how many plays he wrote, but it seems like there's only 12 (laughs) plays that ever get produced on a yearly basis. Romeo and Juliet, I would assume, being one of the top five that are constantly produced.
0: Well, there were bums on seats, including this wonderful um, set
1: of drama students drinking boost juice.
2: (laughs) getting their blood glucose up for all the tears <laughs> later.
1: I get more excited when the obscure ones get played. And I, I think we're seeing a lot less of that, and it might have something to do with funding cuts and a tough market for theatre. But I remember, Philip, when we were back in the day, when we were graduate students together, They Bell Shakespeare were doing Troilus and mm. Crescide mm. and mm. these kind of plays that you'd never heard of. Mm. And I thought, oh, I could actually get into some Shakespeare. Mm. I just want to put my cards on the table at the beginning. I... This is controversial, but I I loathe Shakespeare. Mm. I actually hate reading, watching, seeing Shakespeare. (laughs) I hate the words.
2: Well, we're sorry to have dragged
1: you along. (laughs) No, and I'm sorry also because I feel like that means I have to do it. I have to go in and undo a lot of pre feelings, preconceptions, and I've almost talked myself into that anti Shakespeare position and I want to be talked out of it. This show didn't talk me out of it. No.
2: Well, let's talk about this show in particular then, you know, well, not was- Shakespeare, as a ca- Shakespeare as a canon. but
1: Sadly, it was perhaps
0: because we are celebrating the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. It was really Shakespeare done straight. It was Shakespeare in a seemingly timeless fashion without any real attempt to think about our contemporary context or possible alternative readings of the play. I think that I have seen things by Bell Shakespeare that are a few years old now that were very subversive, that were interested in Shakespeare being a contemporary commentator on what is happening in the world that he sort of helped create with the sentiments from his plays. Instead, this was really like Lucia from the State Opera, a kind of period piece in period costume. So the pantaloon <laughs> comment earlier yeah. was on point absolutely. It, S- stretch
1: denim.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. I thought they were, um, what's it called, up on Sydney Road, Um, you know, where all the hipsters buy their jeans, they get them tailored. <laughs> du jour. <laughs> du jour. I du jour was so waisted. sure that they were du jour <laughs> high-waisted jeans. No, but can I just interject here and say that I – adore a classic retelling every now and again it's like delicious junk food for me to go and eat like I think sometimes we can get so wound up in contemporary retellings or making things you know relevant for today's audiences but sometimes I just want to go and watch something really bog standard performed (laughs) in a really bog standard way you know I don't want someone's ego shut all over it you know what I mean so I did (laughs) I did appreciate this but there was a lot of elements in it that were pretty dusty, but there was some elements that I found – well, there was one element in particular, the costumes, That we'll talk about that later, that I found quite quite amazing. But tell us, Oh, uh, The
1: costumes and the set were the highlight, both designed by Anna Cordingly, whose career just kind of goes from strength to strength. She's done beautiful things. It's interesting to see her do something where the set is – you know more of a kind of literal backdrop um that there have been productions where her sets have been kind of central elements to to the work itself here it's a kind of almost like i guess an approximation of an original Eliz- Elizabethan context with a sort of balconies and scaffolding through th- on which the um characters kind of appeared or climbed there were lots of acrobatics it was a very movement based performance with people jumping around lots of choreographed sword play um and yeah I agree the costumes were stunning
2: the costumes are unbelievable but I found that set pretty like the metaphor pretty ham-fisted like it was sort of like a a a kind of theatre set, like an old theatre, looked like an old theatre with the scaffolding, you know, like I just thought that was a bit hammy, like, you know, this is old institutions in are the falling theater. down, you know, need scaffolding to hold it up, you know, like.
0: The dress for Juliet was exact, like an exact replica of Beauty and the Beast by Disney.
2: What?
1: It was. No,
2: it wasn't. I've dressed up that
1: doll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Juliet Juliet was the worst dressed, I have to say. In the second act, I felt like – th- I wrote, I looked at my notes that I scribbled in the dark and I'd just written about Act 2, Kmart Pajama Party, <laughs> because before she puts on the gown, Me, the yeah. corset, she's in this really <laughs> crappy silk kind of pant, you know, pant, <laughs> I thought, oh, she but
2: I mean, the, the costumes really, and I think costume, particularly very good costuming is very underrated and... This was an extremely beautiful example of how a story can be narrated through costumes. So apart from the actual unbelievable construction of the garments where I just look at those things and I think, how does someone make these? But it could have been really cheesy, but it wasn't where the Montagues and the Capulets were like, they had red hues and blue hues and Juliet was in yellow. And that was where you got the, the Disney princess ball gown. Then that's Act One. So there's all this like separation of state, and then Act Two. It just I thought it was the lighting, but then it just took me a really because the the incandescence material, like the the threading the material, something like that. All the costumes are exactly the same, but they were in grey. Everyone was wearing grey, like grey or black tones. Mm. So this idea that you know primary colors blue, red, and yellow when all, when all mixed together become black.
0: And to follow in terms of this color symbolism, that goldness of Juliet really echoed some of the play's uh, themes around money and merchandise. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a play that has a lot of punning around dollars. And there's a real sense that Juliet is there to be bought and sold. The nurse kind of barters her to the Montagues out in the street. And she says about herself, uh, though I am sold, not yet enjoyed, Mm. as if the loss of her virginity will be a kind of final stage in the transaction Transaction. that passes her from one family to the other. Um, So I did see her as a kind of glowing gold coin in the middle of the production. The performance by that young woman, Kelly Pataniti, I thought was really effective for being youthful there was a real sense that this was an appropriately aged Juliet, somebody who is naive, somebody who is in a kind of teenage bedroom environment of wishing for things and longing for things and feeling that nobody understands her. And suddenly this one person really has, and she's ready. She's ready to go into full-blown suicidal mode if needed. But everyone is homicidal or suicidal in this play. (laughs) I hadn't realised how weirdly morbid it is. I mean, towards the end, everyone's kind of threatening to kill each other even people within their own families. I think Juliet's mother at one stage kind of casts her off in this kind of weirdly violent way and of course everyone's kind of kissing corpses and collapsing in <laughs> tombs and kind of lying down
1: next to their <laughs> cousins who have been dead for a couple so of days. So much
0: poison. It's just a corpsey sort of
1: way. It's a it's a real bloodbath and I think the turns in Romeo and Juliet it, are so excessive that it's a very hard play to do and it's very hard to do it in in its natural in its kind of naturalistic or um orig- you know original form and and pull it off especially after Lerman I have to say like you must have been yes, thinking
0: yeah, of yeah uh,
2: well, <laughs> or Basimataz. Well, <laughs> well e-
1: that everything is post Lerman now right with Romeo and Juliet and I think the you know the sticking point with this play, and and I, you know, I wonder if the two of you agree with me on this, is that it is it is a sexless Romeo and Juliet. It's you know they're very much in love, but the sense of lust really isn't there. I, f- I found the whole production very unsexy, in contrast to Baz Luhrmann's um, Romeo and Juliet, which you know I remember as a teenager just feeling all of my physical and emotional and intellectual longings drawn out by that film in this painful, painful, excruciating and kind of irresistible way. Whereas this, I mean, I'm much older now, um, I'm much less heterosexual now, (laughs) but, you know, I mean, and and maybe that's a question as much as as it is a criticism. I don't know if Romeo and Juliet is a sexy, sexy play,
2: No, I I don't actually think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be the ultimate metaphor about love being a societal commodity and, you know, that they're just as obsessed with each other because there's something on their radar that tells them that they're forbidden. It's the forbidden fruit Hmm. politically. Hmm. So, I mean, of course, star-crossed lovers, blah, 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 but my reading of this play is that it is – love born by the absence or by the forbidden.
0: I mean, Romeo is superficial and does flit from one beautiful woman to the next in terms of his affections. And the fact that they rush towards this marriage in order to consummate it should be a bit sexy in a bad way. I mean, I see Romeo and Juliet as a play about sex, but about really bad teenage sex. And one of the great (laughs) tragedies of their lives is that they die before having experienced anything but that weird kind of, was it the lark or was it that other bird? Do I have to leave you? (laughs) Can I try again later today? But
2: don't you find the pros in it? Like, I am far from, you know, like a Tweety Bird romantic person, but- the prose in this is just so beautiful. Did you, it did not warm you at all.
1: Woe betide <laughs> the actor who has to recite those lines again and try and inject freshness into them. I, I just can't not hear, you know, every high school. You're just like and a rolling university. your eyes the whole
2: time. I've,
1: I've read this text, I've studied, I've taught this text. And it's not only that, it's, you know, the, the language is beautiful, but how many times, uh, you know, Asking you hear yeah. It. yeah. And I feel like people have this endless capacity for revisiting Shakespeare, and some people have endless capacities for rewatching HBO TV series. The play went up, and there was a person next to me whispering the opening lines like it was a <laughs> mantra, like it was a religious experience. And that's the type of theatre going that maybe isn't for me or I'm not so interested in. Hello. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I don't have anything more to say.
2: I will have one more comment about this because I have studied a lot of Shakespeare and that the kind of raucousness of how the boys were played and how there was a lot of kind of into the audience, acting. It was kind of, it was it's like very, monkeys. Yeah, but it's like that's very true to Shakespearean performance, so I appreciated that. I do want to say one thing we haven't brought it up, but people of color, man. So there's a lot of people of color in in the Bell Shakespeare Company, and they, I was going to be like, why don't they get roles? But I turn over the program off Othello's next. so maybe that. But um, they do have a lot of people of color in their company cast. And I don't want to specifically call out Belle Shakespeare as, you know, the protagonist of this. But isn't it time that we had people of colour in these, in these main roles?
1: As Romeo and Juliet. Yeah.
2: It really made me angry. Like, there's so many people of colour in this play, but they're all in secondary
1: roles. Wasn't there a black woman on the poster playing Juliet initially? That might be the Sydney cast. Yeah, it's possible. Okay. Mm. There was, so, this, this show's done a tour from Sydney to Canberra to Melbourne. He's mm. hoping.
2: But I just want i just want that to happen. I'm, I, I just kind of feel it's tokenistic, but yeah. Mm.
1: Well, that's the wish that we can put out to future Bell Shakespeare productions. When you wish. Of- <laughs> I, I, I do agree with you. I think that the um, theatre space, which... Fairfax. The Fairfax, which is one of my favourite theatre spaces in Melbourne, was used beautifully. It really was used to the full of its capacity with lots of movement through the audience and actors present everywhere and I think that's how the Fairfax should always be used yeah fabulous well it's
0: now the time in our podcast when we talk about what's coming soon let's plan our next month in Melbourne what is happening in May people tell me what to do
2: well mine's not in Melbourne it's in Sydney but I'm just going to do a bit of humble bragging (laughs) and say so that the next thing I'm most looking forward to is seeing Bjork DJ in Sydney. Oh, my God. That's part of our Vivid Festival. Well, so Jesus.
0: See, fine. See you
2: guys. Bye.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile in Melbourne, back home, for those people who are into Shakespeare, I am one of them. Melbourne University is doing a big celebration, 400 Shakespeare Melbourne, celebrating 400 years of Shakespeare. That's on now and ongoing. There are events, there are storytelling sessions, there are lectures, there are public discussions, there are classes that you can do at the university. I'm interested in seeing some of those plays. There's just Shakespeare all over the place. And the New Wave Festival is a May thing. Next what? Wave. Next Wave. <laughs> a that's New wave I was like, what? The third wave <laughs> festival will be happening in my living room. <laughs> what is it, Dion?
1: Tell ne- us more. Next wave, it's a biannual. It happens every two years.
2: <laughs> is that
1: what that means? <laughs> Thanks for telling us. That, <laughs> well, I never know if bi-annual is twice a year or every second year. Oh, any- good question. Yeah.
2: No, it's twice. Because... I work in an American company where they don't know Fortnite isn't actually a, a word in America. So What's the word
1: for like quarterly Biweekly, Bi
2: weekly. Okay. Bi weekly, so it must be biannual. And that's why it's biennale
1: Oh, I see. Okay. So the next wave festival happens every two years. <laughs> In Melbourne. <laughs> Historically, it's um, a festival that's put a lot of emphasis into commissioning artworks very early and developing o- them over the course of a couple of years. It'll also bring in some international acts. It's under a new director whose name I've forgotten, who's t- who took over from Emily Sexton, who I think did two or three festivals. It's very hard to characterise, somewhat like Fola, which you talked about recently, but um, a much bigger, more established festival, which will just run the gamut of art forms, medias, and, you know.
2: And locations.
1: mm, I've been to some
2: fucking psychedelic things for Next Wave. I went to this, like, performance at the Planetarium. (laughs) We were all, like, people who had been abducted by aliens and we got, you know, Put through our no, it was like a religious training sect, <laughs> and we got put through all, all of our paces.
0: Are you sure you didn't just
1: go to Science Works?
2: <laughs> I, know, I joined Scientology briefly for a weekend. Everyone, yeah. <laughs>
1: everyone has a really wacky Next Wave experience. Yeah. I saw a show there that was a, a remake of Fight Club, but an actual Fight Club oh. where people fought each oh. other. Oh. Um, yeah, it was intense. Um, I saw it twice. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why, but, you know, there's also a lot of free mm. free stuff at Next Wave. My Next galleries. Wave thing is
0: that I have a bone engraved with a Wurundjeri word from Next Wave that I saw being done live at the library. Uh-huh. So, you know, just to, just just to prove yeah, 100% weird dip. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and was that
2: the one where you could be in a canoe with a right-wing person going down the arrow? Was that yes. that one? I yeah, want yeah, yeah, to yeah.
0: <laughs> <wanna> do that. Yeah. I want to do that. Okay.
2: Good coming soon. Well, thank you, Dion, for coming onto the show. Oh, my God. Well, Fan thank girl. you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Such I a pleasure. basically made a puddle under this chair. Oh, it's Gorgeous.
0: <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for listening. That's our show for April 2016. If you enjoyed it and you want to support us, even for a little bit of money each month, please do so at patreon.com forward slash across aisle. Our lifestyles aren't cheap, so play along at home. You can contact us as well at us at acrossaisle.com. Our Facebook page is Across Aisle. And at Twitter, we are Across Aisle. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you've got your own ideas about Double Feature or Romeo and Juliet or Next Wave stories or Shakespeare in general. Our producer is Ron from Shack West. If you want to sound this good, book him quickly because word is getting out. And thank you, Mark Barrage, for this theme tune. You can hear more of Mark Barrage's original compositions at soundcloud thank you thank you as always to the artists who put on shows this month you are generous people provocative and valuable without you our lives would suck more huge thanks to our special guest dion you played along perfectly and thank you carla thank you we'll be back next month to talk more about theater in melbourne